Amen. Remain standing for a moment, and I'll turn your attention to Amos, our scripture reading for this evening for the sermon. Amos chapter 9, and uh, I'll, read verses, I'll read verses 7 to 9. Having Jesus always offers joy, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Amos chapter 9, this is verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Our gracious God, we do thank you. Thank you that you preside over these services in the person of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are in our midst, even as we gather with the holy angels and our loved ones who have died in the Lord and are before your presence even now. Father, we delight to enter into your presence because doing so honors our King and we do so for our good. And I pray, Lord, I ask that you would take the words we will consider tonight and apply them to our hearts so that we might live faithfully before you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it wasn't exactly by design, it has worked out, but it wasn't exactly by design that we have spent uh, quite a few months talking about meditating on the sovereignty of God, both on Sunday nights and uh, on Wednesday evenings. we've, We've talked a lot about the sovereignty of God, and I think that the concept of God's sovereignty is, is something that I think as pres- when you define yourself as Presbyterian and Reformed, you immediately think about the sovereignty of God. And that's something that distinguishes you. And you, when you talk to other people who are not of a Reformed persuasion, somehow you want to angle the conversation around to talking about the sovereignty of God. And, and so I think we, we can consider the doctrine of sovereignty as a distinguishing doctrine. It really shouldn't be. As we, and so tonight we're, we are going to, as we conclude the, the chapter on providence, the, the Westminster Divines wrap it up with a, a very sweet, I think, meditation as they sort of bring, bring this chapter to a, to a conclusion. And so let me read just the seventh paragraph. It's just a, a pretty short sentence compared to some. It says this, As the providence of God do, does in general, reach to all creatures. So after a most special manner, it takes care of His church and disposes all things to the good thereof. In, as you read through the Older Testament, and you read God, God chastised His people. But He also spoke of Israel in tender, sweet terms. They were his precious vine, his bride, the one that he doted upon, 
The one that He took from all the nations and planted in a special place and He gave them that special place as an emblem of His love for them. Leading them into Canaan was very much like a husband carrying his wife across the threshold of the home and saying, look what I have provided for you. Be at rest. His promise to them is that if they would only trust Him, He would go before them into that land and He would drive out all their enemies I really think that if Israel had been faithful to the Lord, they probably would never have had to lift a sword. God would simply have driven out their enemies like He did for uh, Gideon. They broke the pots and the enemy went fleeing away. They marched around the walls of Jericho and it fell down and, and crashed. And, and, and so what God demonstrates to us in all of that is His tender love for His people. And I, I hope for you that as you think about God's sovereignty, it will never become for you some sort of cold doctrine that God sits... When you think about Psalm 115 and God sits in the heavens and He does as He pleases, you could emphasize God sits in the heavens and here I am on earth and it's, He's moving the players on the board with His hands. And that, that's... He's working all things out according to His own will, according to His own good pleasure. And He takes pleasure in His people. He sings over His people. And as we conclude tonight with this seventh paragraph, I hope you'll take one thing to heart and you'll take it away with you, and it is this, that God, if, you are, if, you are, if your life is hidden in Christ... God loves you with a very great love and He is taking care of you every moment of your life. Every single moment. He has a special care for you. And so we're going to think about that tonight. And the, one, the, major, the major idea from this is that God's providence ensures the good of His church. And I'll say... I'm going to say this. We're going, to, we're going to come back around to this, especially as we finish out Matthew's Gospel. Um, since Christ rose from the dead and commissioned His apostles to take the Gospel into all the world, they have been facing headwinds. You know you look through history and, and you try to find a, where, where is a time in history where the church has just had easy going? Uh, you know, I don't know, Constantine, maybe? <laughs> I'm sure there was a moment where everybody, when Constantine took away the persecution of the church, everybody sort of breathed a sigh of relief for a minute. But even when we're not battling the enemies on the outside, we're battling the enemy on the inside, aren't we? And there are always reasons for you to become pessimistic. For your lower lip to start drooping. And your prayers get more fervent, and that's a good thing. Um, but if God is sovereign, and if He loves His church, then there is reason to believe that God has good intended for His people. So we're going to look at that tonight, just in a couple of brief points. And the first thing that, we're, the, that we are reminded of is that God's providence reaches to all creatures. God's providence reaches to all creatures. 
in general. And remember, we talked about that in cha- paragraph 5 and 6. Well, the whole, whole chapter, really. But in chapter paragraph 5, we remembered that God's providence toward His children is as a father. He disciplines His children. He keeps you on the straight and narrow. And that's such a gracious promise that, that in, when I am tempted to go astray, God is going to, if I belong to Him, He will keep me in the straight and narrow path. Now, He may allow me to make sinful choices so that I'll rem- remember that I'm, I'm not sufficient in and of myself to live this life before Him. I need Him. And I need Him to remind me of that. And you need Him to remind you of that. Our bodies are weak and frail. Our minds are weak and frail. We grow cold in our love for Him. And then we find ourselves on the, on, on, in our prayer saying, Lord, I love You, and, but I don't love You the way that You deserve. And we seek His forgiveness. But He disciplines His children. And that's part of His providence toward us is the way that He cares for us in that way. But he also has exercises his providence over the whole world. His disposition toward the wicked is as a judge, not a father. We talked about the general judgment that every man born of Adam is under God's general judgment. Our hearts are hard and we are blind. And so we can look on this amazing creation and we come away and we say, well, there's not a God. It's an exhibition of the blindness and hardness of our hearts. But there are also specific judgments that we looked at. Removing gifts, giving men over to their lusts, and things like that. But in the end, God's providence reaches to the ends of the earth. One of our favorite Christmas hymns is Joy to the World. Who of you have that as your favorite Christmas hymn. Um, nobody. Well, it's just me, I guess. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's okay. I'll stand alone. It's not, actually, it's not a Christmas carol. Um, it's written by Isaac Watts, and he wrote it as sort of a summary of the last five stanzas of Psalm 98 to go into his hymn book in 1719. And um, when you read it, you, you come away just with an understanding of the fact uh, it, it's a reflection on the majesty of Christ and that He brings joy to the whole world. You think about it. He is the King of the earth, verse 1. He is the Savior who reigns in the ver- second verse. In the third verse, He is reversing the curse not of the cubs, but of sin. And in the fourth stanza, He rules the world and He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness. I have a feeling that if you, if you went to lunch with Isaac Watts and you started to talk about the sovereignty of God, he would wax eloquent about his anticipation of what God was going to do for the, his people in the future. He would not have been a poor-mouthing man He would have had high expectations for the victories of God's people through Christ. When we think of the general providence of Christ then, we remember that He rules the world. Your King rules the world. 
The one who watches over you day by day, who never sleeps, he rules the world. And I'm going to give you, um, well, I'm going to, I have one thing I was going to use, an illustration. I'm going to save it for the second point. So the second point then is that God's providence takes care of his church. God's providence takes care of his church. It extends to all creation, all life, but it is especially careful of his church. Um, in other words, all things are disposed to its good. One of, the, one of the songs that we really enjoy singing is Isaiah 43. And some of you all will know this song. It's, an, it's, it's been retuned by RUF. And it says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You won't be consumed by the fire. And it's taking these promises from Isaiah 43. And it's a reminder from God to His people saying, I, I'm going to cause you to go through some afflictions. But you're not going to be consumed. Hey, okay? I am with you. And so as you, if you turn to Isaiah 43, we'll look at that. Let's begin reading in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. In verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And just very simply, you see both the general providence and the special providence of God in this verse. How do we see the general providence of God? Well, we see it in the fact that he says, uh, foreign powers are not outside of God's providence. These other nations, Seba and Cush, Egypt, they are not outside of God's providence. You see, even those foreign nations who are not His special bride, who are not His special vine, who are not the ones that He has cultivated, they too are subject to His providence. They are still under His power and authority. And He exercises His providence over them, directing them to the accomplishment of His will. How can I think about that as a Christian? Well, when you turn on the news or you read your paper or you turn on the police scanner or whatever you do, and you are aware of the evil in this world, and it feels as though it's closing in around you, understand that that evil is not outside the providence of God. It is fulfilling His purpose. And there are times, understand this, there are times and have been times throughout history where God has used evil forces, He's allowed them to discipline His children, to remind them of their need for Him. All of this is an aspect of God working for the good of His church. The special providence that we see in Isaiah 43 is God saying, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I will give Egypt in return for you. 
peoples in exchange for your life. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Not them. I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. These are verses 4 to 5. I will gather you in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. You note the special providence. What is God saying to His people? You are special in my eyes. I formed you. I created you. I redeemed you. And you are special in my eyes. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. I am with you. I will rescue your children. I will gather you. And then we see again the general providence that he sends to Babylon and brings them down as fugitives. Even it would seem in the ships where they were laughing about their victories over God's people, in those ships they are brought back as captives. We read to to begin tonight from Amos chapter 9, verses 8 to 9. And there also we see both the special and and the general providence of God. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. General providence of God. In Amos 9, God reminds His people that He sees the sinful kingdom. His eyes are everywhere. It may seem to you that God doesn't see. Surely, the psalmist occasionally will reflect, surely, and Job, if God saw, He would not be so slack in carrying out His judgments. But God assures His people, I see. I see. And His special providence... I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. What's the, what's the idea? You've probably seen some movies where there's a hostage situation. And the hostage taker, he grabs someone and holds them from behind, holding that person up as a human shield, threatening to take that individual's life. And so the hero is trying to figure out, how do I take out the villain and preserve the life of the innocent person. And so it, 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 all, you know, it always works out, usually works out um, that he is able to kill the villain without harming the innocent individual. And what God is reminding His people here is that He can punish the sinful kingdom and preserve His people within it. Imagine a situation like Sodom and Gomorrah where God is causing fire to rain from heaven and and burn up the city. He is able in His providence only to kill the people who are the villain and to preserve His people. And this is what He promised. He can use 
do that using natural processes. You think about um, Korah's rebellion where he caused the earth to open up and what happened? It swallowed the rebels. Or he can do that by miraculous intervention as he may please. I think one of the things that we see, the, the Proverbs remind us that those who hate wisdom love death. And it's a, a fascinating study in our culture that the, the, the rebellion we see is self-defeating. The wicked love death and they bring judgment upon themselves. We also see this in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, every event on earth works toward the preservation and upbuilding of God's people. Just think about the whole scope of the Older Testament. Think about Esther. When the Persian Empire had the Jews in a virtual stranglehold, they had one hand on the rope, and it was gradually letting go, and they were about to be totally annihilated when God used one woman by the name of Esther to deliver all of His people. And suddenly, the one who had Israel in a stranglehold, found himself in a stranglehold on a 70-foot gallows. God preserves His people. John Calvin remarks on Romans 8.28, though the elect and the reprobate are indiscriminately exposed to similar evils, there is yet a great difference. For God trains up the, the faithful by afflictions and thereby promotes their salvation. You see, the very same circumstances of life that harden the reprobate in their sins serve to sanctify and edify God's elect. For some, the death of a loved one elicits curses toward and abandonment of God. But for God's children, death draws us to closer dependence on Him. Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. God's providence ensures the good of His church. When foreign powers dominated Israel, and took her captive, God did not hand His people over. Instead, He used those foreign powers to discipline His children and teach them to trust in Him. In other words, the foreign powers were simply the instrument in God's hand, the rod by which He drew His children back to faithfulness in Him. Today, God continues to use the rod of discipline against His people, sometimes corporately, sometimes individually. We live today under the authority of wicked men. But God has not handed us over to them. You understand that. He is using them 
just as he did the pagan nations long ago, to chastise his people and teach us to trust in him. Therefore, when God's people live through predominantly wicked times, our response should be to examine ourselves for sin. How have we departed from what God commands? And pray intensely and ask God for reprieve. And finally, finally, here's the use that you make of this doctrine. Never, ever give in to fear and despair. This is what God wanted for Joshua. Be strong and very courageous. I am with you. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you know our frame. You know that we are very, very weak. You know that at any moment, Lord, our faith is tempted to fail. And so, Father, we come simply confessing tonight that we need You. And we know, Lord, that we don't live lives that are worthy of You. And that grieves us. And yet, we hope in Your love, Father, that we're not accepted in Your sight because of the perfection of our obedience, but because of the perfection of the obedience of Jesus Christ. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here gathered. I ask that you would give us a renewed strength to go in and take the land that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, not with sword, but with the sword of the Spirit. And Father, we ask that you would go before us and help us to be faithful to you in all things. Father, we love you, but not as we ought. We love you, but not as you deserve. And we ask you now, to fan the embers of love within us to a roaring hot flame. Thank you for protecting us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.